because I had had another failure a year before where I took on something that was a little bit too big for me. It was a 550 mile self-supported bike packing race across Colorado in the mountains. I wasn't prepared. Like it was, I, I didn't have the ability to spend that kind of time um, in the mountains and the experience. So I, I freaked out and, and quit the race. And that's like, I just never quit anything. But to this day, I still think that's the best decision. But I was still reeling from that because I was I was depressed after that had happened and now to have this happen. So I was like, okay, well, I have two choices. I can either just say like, I suck and I'm a failure and I quit. Or I can, I can choose how I view this experience. So we all have experiences in our lives and not all of them go the way that we want them to go. But if, if you choose to look at it and focus on all the negative things and all the things that went wrong, you miss out on all the things that went right. And while it's important to look at the things that went wrong and to learn from them, if you focus on those things, then you start creating this negative feedback spiral of just focusing on all these bad things. And you, it's, it's just not, in my opinion, that's not a great way to live your life. Instead of focusing on, oh my, you know, something out of my control happened and this sucks and, you know, whatever, I started focusing on all the things that had been amazing about this experience. That is Sonia Looney, and I'm Brian Felchuk. The Do A Day Podcast. Will you hear from the most inspiring people who have been through hard times, overcome them, and have turned around to help others with what they've learned? I'm your host, Brian Falchuk. I know because I've lived it myself. I've written about it in my book, Do A Day, and that's why I'm bringing you this show. Remember, today's a new day. Go out and do it. Hey, day doers. Welcome to another episode of the Do A Day podcast. I've got an epic guest on today. Her name is Sonia Looney. She has won over 25 mountain bike endurance races all over the world, 20 plus countries. Um, if you don't know what a mountain bike endurance race is or a multi-stage event, it's something that, you know, it's not just like you go for an hour or something. Um, if you've watched mountain biking on the Olympics, pretty amazing. But what we're talking about is a multi-day event. So like a seven-day or eight-day ride or 24 hours straight. And she doesn't do them in, uh, you know, just some nice mountains and whatever. She does them in places like the Sahara Desert and Haiti. And the one that we're really going to get into a lot is this event that she did in the Himalayas in Nepal called the Yak Attack. And um, I want to get into it. I want to say so much about it, but I want to hold it for her to tell the story. She went into it in a lot of detail in, uh, in this TEDx talk that she did that's unbelievable. It's super vulnerable, and it pushes you to get comfortable with tough moments and recognize that even when it seems like everything's falling apart, maybe it isn't, and you can grow from that. And she just does such a great job of telling that message, sharing it with you, and sharing it from such a personal place. Like She even has live video that she shot during the event when she was in the midst of the epic lows that she faced on top of having been at the highest of highs. So I don't want to give away any more than that, but you got to watch it. You, you got to watch her TEDx talk. And of course, links in the show notes, if you haven't seen them already, give it a listen, give it a watch. And uh, it's pretty awesome. But she gives so much of herself in this episode. It runs a little bit longer than most of them. And it's well worth it. So you're going to come away super inspired. I know. She's got so much more to her story than just that. The path she was going down and um, not that it was a bad path, but it was just more prescriptive and maybe less, um, less personal 
than what she realized she really wanted to be doing. And she talks through all that. So we will jump in and get into the depths of all of it with Sonia Looney. And remember, if this is piquing your interest, listen to other episodes, subscribe, uh, check out doadaybook.com. There's tons more for you to get, whether it's the book or you want to get the free exercise, uh, doadaybook.com slash the exercise. Keep going with the inspiration, build yourself. So let's jump in. Sonia Looney, thank you so much for being on. I'm so excited to have you tonight. Very cool. Brian, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much. I'm, uh, I'm going to contain my giddiness so I can do a good job interviewing, but um, you're a rock star. I mean, not literally, but um, about as figuratively as, as it gets. Your story is awesome, and you're living this life that's like pure passion. I'm sure there's so much more to it than anyone looking on could guess, but uh, God, talk about like following what you really love and just making it happen. So I'm, I'm so amped up to have you on today. Thanks so much. Um, so obviously I would have said something in the intro about who you are and what you do, but you probably will say it much better than I did. So can you give us the, the high level, like who is Sonia Looney? What are you about? And what is this passion that I was just talking about? Yeah, that's such a great question because that's constantly been evolving in my journey. And it used to be that I was a pro mountain biker who took on the world's hardest mountain bike races around the world. And that was my goal was to see if I could push my limits and see what would happen if I started doing all those races. But who I was and what I was searching for started to change because I was just trying to win races. But then by going and doing these races in all these third world countries and sometimes being the first person to ever do them, I started realizing that there was a lot more to it than just riding a bike. It was about learning who you are and what your expectations are and how you're going to show up in life. And those have evolved into turning my life into more of an entrepreneurial lifestyle. And so my why when I get up in the morning is how do I tell stories to help people live a better life? And that's what drives everything that I do. Wow. So that is very much not going out on a trail and getting muddy. That is serious purpose. I love that. Um, part of me is just curious, like in the midst of these races while you're on your bike, is that when you're having this opening up or is it on reflection? Because all I can think about, I'm, I haven't mountain biked in years, but road cycling, you have to be so present in the actual ride that I find it hard to start to think about bigger things like I could on a run or something. So is it, is it the whole experience or is this literally like while you're in the midst of the trail, you're having these kind of like life opening kind of thoughts? Yeah, Brian, I, I think it's actually both. So whenever you're doing really long races, like some of my races are seven days long. So there'll be like a set start and finish every day, but the race time will be like 34 hours or I've done like 24 hours straight racing. And you have a lot of time to think, and there's a lot of ups and downs that happen. So in those moments when you want to give up, you have to figure out what kind of person you are and, and what, what you decide affects you the rest of your life and it affects all of your future decisions. So if you decide to give up today, how are you going to feel about that tomorrow? And how is that going to show up next time things get hard? So I, I do think that in those moments and while I'm out on the trail, there is a lot that goes into the reflection piece. But I say that the most reflection is on my training rides because I'm mm. not trying to race. I'm not trying to focus on the race. And a lot of times in races, I'm not thinking about lots of things unless things are going wrong. And that's when I'm trying to utilize all these tools that I have and that I've, <laughs> I've learned through experience as to how to make it better. 
But I'd say that most of my reflection time comes from active movement, whether it be walking or on a bike ride. And the biggest challenge is like some people have their best ideas in the shower. And the biggest challenge is when you're on a ride and you keep having all these ideas, you want to record them. And so like I've tried using like Siri on my headphones, but she never knows exactly what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So yeah, like having a stream of consciousness with all these different thoughts, um, it'd be, it's hard to record them all. <laughs> yeah. And you, a lot of times you think you're going to remember them. And then like, however many hours later, you're like, wait, what, what was I talking about? Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to take, I want you to take us back to you, you this amazing TEDx talk about this particular race that you did, the Yak Attack, that had this, um, it, it had this moment, this, this kind of eye-opening moment of vulnerability of pain yet also unlocking can you can you take us through the event and what ended up happening and what that did for you yeah so the event is called the yak attack and it's a 10-day mountain bike stage race across the annapurna circuit in nepal and the ted talk is called by bike defining success at 17,769 feet. So I did this race. Um, I think it was in 2012 was the first time I did this race. And I was a pretty new stage racer, meaning stage racing, meaning multi-day races. And I hadn't done a lot of international travel at that point either, but I found out that no woman had ever finished this race before. And then it's one of the, one of the hardest races in the world. And it is to date still the highest mountain bike race in the world in terms of elevation. And I decided, I, I still don't really know why I decided that I had to do it. I think it stems from a long line of people telling me that I can't do something. And then I have to prove to them that I can. Yeah. Um, and, and we, we can go into that, but all of us have had that experience where someone's like, you can't do that. Prove them wrong. Prove them wrong. Yeah. So I signed up for this race and I was really freaked out. Like I was going to Asia, basically my, my friend was going, but like basically by myself and in the race, like there's no support, like there's no, there's no one along the way to help you. So <laughs> you have to get from point A to point B and there's a lot of hiking, a lot of just completely remote backcountry. And at that time there was no road on the Annapurna circuit either. So if anything went wrong at all, you were a hundred percent responsible for taking care of it. So if your uh -huh. bike breaks, if you get sick, if you decide to quit, if you get altitude sickness, the only way back is to turn around and go back by yourself the way you came, which some people actually had to do. So I was really nervous about the unknown and like, what's going to happen whenever I go out in, in this circuit, I lived at altitude, but you can get altitude sickness no matter who you are at any time. So I was just really nervous that things were going to go wrong. And like, what's, how am I even going to travel in Asia? And like, my dad was sending me all the bad things that could happen to me <laughs> because he's, he's a very practical engineer. So there's all these voices telling me, um, telling me that it's going to be really hard and you have to choose which voice you listen to. And I chose to listen to the voice that said, no, like you can do this. And you, I'm, I'm just curious, logistically, this is kind of off topic a little bit, but are you even packing like food and not, like, are you doing this ride with a pack full of all your equipment? In, in some, so yes, sort of. So th they have a Sherpa, so like, or each person has a Sherpa, so they carry your gear, but you're only allowed, I think it's 20 pounds of gear for the entire race. Wow. So like you have to bring all your own sports nutrition and now you have to make different selections because sport nutrition weighs a lot Yeah. and like all your clothes, your own sleeping bag. So like, like 
the Sherpa would take a really long time. It would take a lot. He would take a lot longer than you would because he's yeah. walking the route that you're riding. So I actually ended up taking like lightweight shoes and like down jacket, down pants. Cause you, you'd finish the, your race for the day and then you'd have no clothes and nothing to wear and nothing to do. So I would actually end up bringing a lot of stuff with me during the race. Wow. Um, there's so many more complications to it than certainly that, than you get out of the Ted talk or then I think people would even think about or realize you're not just responsible for your bike and any bike related equipment, but you got to live in between all that riding. Um, that, that's huge. So, so you're out there, you're doing the event altitude's not an issue. Uh, no, I definitely felt the altitude. Like the, there is a, a rest day and acclimatization day at around 15,000 feet. Um, and like you have a headache and stuff, but it was nothing serious. Um, I did, I was experiencing some high altitude issues. Um, not, not nothing like serious or life threatening when I got to the top, but, or, or to the high point of the race, which is Throng La Pass, which is the longest mountain pass in the world. And there's 14 false summits on the way. So this is day nine of 10 of the race. And you have to start, I can't remember exactly what time, but I think it was like four o'clock in the morning or something was the start time. And you have a headlamp and you walk outside, it's pitch black and you walk in the snow. Mm. So you, you actually like, you can't ride your bike cause it's covered in snow. So everybody had to design something to carry their bike on their back. So I designed this thing where like my bike is on my back and I'm wearing my bike and my backpack. My water instantly froze cause it was like minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit yeah. or something crazy. And you just like follow this little tunnel of light on the snow and just hope for the best. And when you're at that altitude, like it, it's really hard cause you can't move very quickly and yeah. it just, it just takes forever. So you have to take a few steps and then, and then kind of like rest for a second and a few more. So the the hike itself isn't that long to the top. It just takes forever, but the sun eventually comes up. And whenever you get to the top, um, it's, it's common to be like overly emotional because like you're probably low blood sugar. you have, don't have much oxygen and, um, yeah, having like the worst headache of your life for sure. <laughs> and someone said, yeah, you're going to have the worst headache of your life. And I thought, come on, but it's like your heartbeat is your headache. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Every pound pounds your head. Wow. Yeah. Cause like your, your brain is like, being starved of oxygen. So yeah. yeah, it's like, it's not above that altitude, actually, like your body actually starts breaking down physically. And that's why like with Everest base camp, like it, it's around the same altitude as, um, we're at the top of this pass, but people have to keep coming back down because above that altitude, like you just physically can't survive for very long. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, and you had the whole, the false summit issue, which for anyone who's climbed mountains, the, like, <laughs> It, it like you you're you set your sight it's like there's your goal post and you put everything you've got into it and then as soon as you get there like you, know, you pull a little homer simpson moment you're like don't you see the next yeah. one and you're like oh that's got to be it and you go through that like 14 times yeah and i mean i think that that that's a really interesting thing about expectations is whenever you have expectations it kind of sets up uh sets you up for disappointment in some ways so something i've really been thinking about a lot lately is is like how to manage expectations properly. Because if you have expectations and you feel really disappointed or expectations of somebody else, you have created that. So like, I, I don't know the answer, but like, how do we set expectations that are, that are going to help us instead of cr set us up for disappointment? Yeah, that is super true. Especially, I mean, I'm just thinking about people and relationships. Like most of our disagreements or arguments are about someone failing to live up to 
whatever we expect, whether it's like, you know, that you won't attack me or that you'll believe me or that you'll love me or you'll accept what I'm saying or whatever. It's we've set some expectation, whether we're aware of it or not with, with people, with, with things, with events, occurrences, whatever. Yeah. And I think that there's a fine line between having realistic expectations or, or like expectations that are easy to meet versus being apathetic in your relationships. So like, where is that line? And I, I think that that line is different for everybody. Um, but I, I think even more importantly, it's, it's being gentle and accepting when people don't meet your expectations. Cause there's no way to just say, I'm not going to have expectations, but I think that it comes with the acceptance of what happens, um, when that expectation isn't met. Yeah. What about expectations of yourself? Because that's, you know, there's also that line between pushing yourself and being too easy on yourself or being apathetic about what you achieve and what you go for. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is in some ways the hardest part because some people are afraid to put themselves out there and set the expectation high because that then you're a failure if you don't do it. So again, I, I think that I think that we're figuring it out here that it's it's okay to have expectations, but it's how, how do you deal with it? How do you deal with failure or um, not even failure, just whenever it doesn't turn out the way that you had hoped? Like how how do you define that? How do you choose to make that into something that's meaningful to you and also something that's not going to paralyze you from trying again the next time? Yeah. Well, to me, this this story and ultimately where it goes, that's what it's about is about expectations and what you do in the face of living up to them or not living up to them. And where do you take it from there? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So speaking of, so I, yeah. I, I made it to the top of this mountain pass and there's only one more day left. It's, it's all downhill. There's like a, I'm trying to remember how many thousand feet it was like, it's the it's easy like an 8,000 foot descent or something. Yeah. You just like ride your bike downhill for yeah, 8,000 feet. Go. Like sweet. Um, but then something bad happened and my brakes on my bike had an epic failure where there was, so mountain bikes have hydraulic disc brakes for those of you who aren't familiar with mountain biking. And if you guys haven't tried mountain biking, it's the best sport ever, but, um, (laughs) mountain bikes have hydraulic brakes and you know, this is a fair statement. It's like brakes aren't tested to work at 18,000 feet. Like that's just not a place where most people are going to bring their bike. Like a very, very small percentage of people per year are going to do that. So these brakes were a prototype and they, there, there was, there was, it wasn't even in my mind that the, that they might fail because of the pressure at that altitude. So they failed and there was no way to fix them or to bring them back. So, so it wasn't just like the hydraulic fluid froze and it just needed to defrost. Like they're ruined. Yeah, like sometimes there's air bubbles, like things like that happen, but the seals had blown and there was oil yeah. coming out. So it was just like done. Done. So I was like, okay, well, that sucks. Um, but I'm just going to have to walk now to the finish, which is a long walk. Like that walk took the total walking for the day was about seven hours, but the walk to the finish line was about four hours, which could have been like a 30 minute, like yeah. downhill or maybe an hour downhill. So and like that, a that fun sucked. victory bomb to the end. Yeah. And then like one more day of like kind of easy, fun riding. So that, that sucks. And I was really angry and just, I couldn't believe that I had made it that far. Like I had gotten to, I had like gone to the race. I, I, I made it over the pass. I didn't get sick. Cause like my, t- my friend who was there actually got deathly ill and had to ride a yak down the pass. Huh. And I had to watch it all unfold in front of me. Cause we shared the same, um, room in the tea house and like the tea house rooms are so small that you can like reach out and touch the bed next to you. 
So like my worst nightmare unfolded next to me and I was supporting him through that, you know, emotionally and physically, like helping take care of him. So like I had made it through all these really challenging things and then only to have something completely out of my control, like basically stop me from finishing this race. So I just said, okay, I just got to get to this finish line, but it's, I was frustrated. And for whatever reason, um, like this is, I'm about documenting. And this is funny because Gary Vaynerchuk is always talking about documenting now. And this was pre Gary Vaynerchuk or, Mm. I mean, not, not pre Gary, like he was still doing stuff, but it was before. Yeah, but he wasn't at that level. Yeah. Not, not then. So like, it was funny. Cause I was like, I got to document this whole experience. Like I had been journaling it. I had been taking videos every day at the fin, like in my little tea house of how I was doing. And so I was like crying cause I was mad and I just frustrated and in disbelief and people were like blowing by me, like laughing and happy on their bikes. And here I was walking, not even sure if I'd be able to start the next day because the next day was 42 miles. And I thought to myself, well, could I run 42 miles? Like, and there was other women in the race too. So like, I, I, I had enough of a lead where that day I might still be in the lead if I hurried to the finish, but there's no way that I was going to be the first woman to finish if I had to run the next day and yeah. running with your bike for 42 miles just wasn't something that I like, I don't know if I physically could have done that or not. So, so your bike has to cross the finish line too. Yeah. Yeah. Your yeah. bike has to cross the finish line. So yeah, so I, I was crying and I decided to pull out my camera and take a video of it. <laughs> and it's in my TED talk. And there's actually some, you know, I didn't play the entire hissy fit because there was some cursing <laughs> and some things that wouldn't be appropriate for, you know, Fair all enough. audiences. Um, but, but that was an important moment in my career, both, both, both were important moments going to this event and having that happen. Um, because I had had another failure a year before where I took on something that was a little bit too big for me. It was a 550 mile self-supported bike packing race across Colorado in the mountains on the Colorado trail. And yeah, I, I just wasn't. I wasn't prepared. Like it was, I I didn't have the ability to spend that kind of time, um, in the mountains and the experience. So I I freaked out and and quit the race. And that's like, I just never quit anything. But to this day, I still think that's the best decision, but I was still reeling from that because I was, I was depressed after that had happened. And now to have this happen. So I was like, okay, well, I have two choices. I can either just say like, I suck and I'm a failure and I quit. Or I can I can choose how I view this experience. So we all have experiences in our lives, and not all of them go the way that we want them to go. But if if you choose to look at it and focus on all the negative things and all the things that went wrong, you miss out on all the things that went right. And while it's important to look at the things that went wrong and to learn from them, if you focus on those things, then you start creating this negative feedback spiral of just focusing on all these bad things. And you, it's, it's just not, in my opinion, that's not a great way to live your life. So instead of focusing on all oh, my, you know, something out of my control happened and this sucks and you know, whatever, I started focusing on all the things that had been amazing about this experience. And that helped me get through the rest of that day, four hour walk back to the finish line. And I had lots of time to think about it. Do you, was it, how, how did you get to that decision? Like, was that a conscious thing for you or is that some, is that kind of who you are? Cause for a lot of people, when they're in, in the throes of, you know, a nervous breakdown, a, a de- like being overcome by depression or feeling such intense failure or like, you know, everything's come apart. They find it so hard to have that pullback and be like, okay, where, you know, where can I get perspective from? How can I bring this back together? How did you do that? 
Um, it, it comes from previous experiences and just over time, because when you put yourself out there constantly in your life, you're going to have things that don't go well. <laughs> like it's just going to happen. Yeah, it's and, called life. Yeah. And it, and it was just, it's a practice. Like resilience is a muscle. It's something that you have to exercise. And the only chances you get to exercise that muscle is when you put yourself out there. So it was, it was from pre previous experiences, but like, I'm a, I'm a human being still. And like, I do things, I, I go to events or I, I do things in my life or in my business where I can't pull myself out of that negative spiral sometimes. Like it's not going to happen. It's not going to work every single time. Um, there's going to be times and days where you just have to accept like that. That's how it is. And then the next day you have to start over again and say this, okay, like I'm going to start looking at it this way again and reframing things, but you still have to validate those emotions whenever you're upset about it too, like just packing it away and saying, I'm, Oh, like, it's all good. Like it's not all good. And it's important to, to not ignore that too. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I preach it in my book. Like that's a hundred percent spot on. You don't just ignore the tough times or like wipe them away or bottle them up inside, which is what you're really doing. Cause they're still there causing damage. You have to give them their space. You have to acknowledge them and learn from it. And then you can move forward. Yeah, but not everybody wants to hear that. Like no. when people are upset and they're having a hard time. Um, I've experienced this in my own family because, like, I'm 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 naturally a really positive and happy person. But you know, there's times where I have to work at it for certain situations. But sure. like when things aren't going well for family members, um, it, it's it's a fine line between empathy and then trying to help. And like when you're trying to support somebody going through something that's difficult, sometimes people just want to tell you how they're feeling, and it's it's hard to know like when to give people advice and when to just shut up and listen. Yeah. And also like when to draw the line of, okay, like I've been listening to this person complain over and over and over. Um, am I just like supporting their behavior of complaining or am I just being supportive and listening? So like, it's, it's trying to figure out where that is too. <laughs> yeah. And no, that's a really tough line to walk validation and empathy sometimes are all they're looking for and that's what they need to move on. And sometimes you're almost, uh, you know, it's, it's like you're, you're facilitating, or I can't think of the word that, um, for an addict, like when you're, you're enabling, enabling. that's right. Yeah. Like yeah. you're just enabling this very negative, gloomy, complaining outlook instead of, you know, this is terrible. Yes. And here's how we can get through it. You know, just yeah. staying in the, this is terrible moment. Cause that's where they're comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, in my TED talk, I talk about how, how do you define success in your life? And the talk, you know, I, I love reading. I love books. I'm, I'm an avid reader, especially about like psychology and self-help, because I think having that awareness really helps you in your life. And it also enables you to help others. So I, I love the book Mindset by Carol Dweck. And the, the most interesting thing that I pulled out of that book, it's about fixed versus growth mindset, is that Whenever we reward we reward people for the fruits of their effort instead of the effort itself, it screws you up and it makes you focus on perfection over progress. So like an example would be your kid gets 100% on a test and you're like, oh, great job. You're so smart and you're so talented. But then what happens when they don't get 100%? Are they not smart and not talented? Mm. And so she goes into a lot of detail about that in her book. But you grow up um, thinking that if you aren't first or you're not the best, then you're less than. 
So something I've really been focusing on since I read that book many years ago was rewarding effort and talking about effort instead of the outcome. And so I looked, I looked back at this race. This, this didn't happen in the moment. It happened with some processing, but I was successful at that. Like, regardless of what the outcome was, I was successful because I showed up and I did my best. And the thing that happened was out of my control and I grew as a person because of it. And that is something that's a lesson that is repeated over and over in my life. And, um, whenever I'm, supporting other people around me, I try my hardest not to just say like, you know, a lot of my friends are really like, they're like Olympic high level racers. And instead of just saying like, Oh, great job. Like you got a bronze in the Olympics. That's amazing. Like I say, wow, like you worked really hard to get there. Like that's amazing. And yeah. I think that that means more to people whenever you say that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just thinking about all the, uh, the backlash about like, everyone's a winner. Everyone gets a trophy. That's not what you're talking about. You're not just saying like the fact that they did anything is like give them a first place trophy. It's like real effort, real challenge, real progress, even if the outcome wasn't the best outcome or wasn't exactly what they hoped for. It's like they put something in it. Like you finished it. You could have very easily just said like, screw this. My bike's toast. I'm done. Like I'm going to sit here and cry and, and that's that. But you did push yourself through. You did continue on and you got to the finish line and you could have done less than that. Yeah. And I think that that's where this, um, obsession with failure and, and fear of failure comes in is because if we only reward people with love or like parties or, or trophies or whatever, I'm not saying everybody should get a trophy, but I'm just saying that like, if, if we're only rewarding people for being number one, then they're afraid to fail. They're, they're afraid to do something if they're not number one. So we should reward people's effort, not people's result. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of talk about that in the business community and in, in, uh, in the startup world, like you want a founder who's failed before because the amount of growth that they got out of that is huge. And the fact that they're here to do it again is a sign of resilience and a sign of like, you know, they're willing to try something and fail, but keep going. So like there's, there's opportunity in that versus like, you know, if you, if you only have it easy, you never get tested when the chips are down, then who knows whether you just give in. Yeah, totally. So you do finish. And I didn't realize when you talked about dis the descent, I thought the finish line's right there from the, the TED Talk. But you still, how do you get through the remaining 42 miles? Yeah, that, so that's a great question. So like I had no breaks and, and like I, I had a night to sleep, but I had to figure something out. And I, I had no idea. Like there was the uncertainty again of, okay, I'm going to make it to the finish line today somehow. Like I can walk to the finish line. Um, but how am I going to do it the next day? Because there's no bike shop. Like you're in the middle of nowhere in the mountains in Nepal. <laughs> yeah. Um, and my, my friend who got sick, his, his misfortune became my fortune. <laughs> so he had, you know, he had quit the race because he was too sick to go on. Like he was like, he did not want to quit the race, but he probably like, he could have died if he kept going. So I didn't know what the deal was with what, what the deal was with his bike, because I didn't even know if he was, had to go back the way he came or if he was coming over the pass. So when he showed up at the finish line, I was like, Oh, awesome. Like he didn't race. He made, he came on the yak, but I thought, well, what happened to his bike? And he has the same brakes as me. Like, I wonder if those brakes are working or not. And he had one working brake on his bike. So I was able to take the one working brake off his bike and do the last day of the race just with one brake. Wow. And 
I think I only had like now a five minute lead over the second place girl with all wow. the shenanigans from the, from the mountain pass. Yeah. So I was like, all right, it's on. Like I gotta, I gotta do this last day of the oh race. My gosh. And, and I remember that it was so windy on that last day. It was like so windy that the Nepalese riders were afraid of the wind, but I was living in Boulder, Colorado at the time and the Springs, like you literally can get blown off your bike in the spring. So I was comfortable in the wind and I actually had one of my best results in the overall. I think I was like second or third place in the men that day because of the wind. Wow. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, so you, you did it like by the skin of your teeth. So you're the, the first finishing woman in the race, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Where did you end up overall? Uh, or do know, they not track honest, it? No, they do. I, I think I might've been like seventh. I, I actually don't remember, um, to be honest in that, in that race, but I, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was like in, yeah, sixth or seventh. And you've done it again since then. Yeah. I went back the next year and it was funny because once you've done something once, doing it again is way easier. So yeah. like there was no intimidation cause I knew exactly what to expect. I brought, I, I, I it was a bit overkill, but I brought <laughs> an sure. entire brake lever and caliper in my backpack in case yeah. something happened. Look, and, it's like, understandable. A, like, and this has actually happened to other people like, and because of my misfortune, they, they actually were prepared for it. So <laughs> that was good. But yeah, I went back the next year and I had, I had an amazing time. I had no issues. Like it was great. That's awesome. What, what are some of the other places that, that you've raced since then that are the ones that, that kind of opened your mind and, and created that shift that you were talking about earlier today? Um, I would say all the Asian countries for sure. Just, just from a cultural perspective, just, they're so different. Like I've raced in Sri Lanka and it's not, it's not only just about racing. It's about experiencing how other people live. Cause at these races, you're not staying in five-star hotels. Yeah. Like you're a lot of times you're like sleeping on the ground or like you're living like the locals live. So going to Sri Lanka was pretty cool. Um, I've raced my mountain bike across a part of the Sahara desert and wow. like that was really hard. Um, a lot harder than I was expecting because of the heat and the length of the days and the conditions. Mm -hmm. But it was really interesting because we were in the Atlas mountains in the, like in Morocco. And then suddenly you're in the Sahara desert and you have to like ride through sand and push through sand dunes and sleep out in the desert with, no with nothing around. So wow. that was, yeah, that was, that was pretty interesting. <laughs> And then temper, temperature extremes, like not that Nepal is easy, but it's kind of always cold up on the mountains, but in the Sahara, yeah. like doesn't it get freezing cold or close to it at night versus yeah. 100 and whatever during the day? Yeah, there was like a definite, um, definite extremes in temperature. And, um, yeah, I think it was like 110 or 120 degrees during the day. So yeah, there was a lot of, uh, of things there and the race course was not my strength. It, it was pretty flat. Mm -hmm. And so mentally it was just so hard because you'd be by yourself and just see like nothing for as far as the eye can see. And the days would be like, you know, some of the days were seven hours of riding. <laughs> yeah. Or just mind numbing nothingness and, and extreme <laughs> heat. Wow. And, um, you know, thinking about your point on the cultures and, and the life, like, you know, you're there for a number of days doing this extreme event, but people live there every day. Um, not only is it so desolate, but they're living with those extremes constantly and they can't just go in and turn the heat on or blast the air conditioner. It yeah. Like, and like even access to water, like it, it makes you really thankful for like, we just won, we just won the lottery, like growing up where we did or being born in the time and place that we were like, yeah. 
there's places where people, I, I did a podcast, so I have my own show and I did a podcast with somebody the other day and part of their proceeds go to charity, water.org. And they told me 4,000 children die every single day from not having water. And like just having access to water, like think of all the water we waste on a daily basis and how, how much we take that for granted. Like, or, or even like having trash pickup, like having, having, yeah. cause like in Nepal, they burn their garbage because yeah. there's no trash pickup or like the way we're able to like treat our dead. Like, yeah. you know, it, like, uh, in Monty Python, bring out your dead, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. And they and, and the trash and the water are two separate things in where we live. You know, they're not intermingled and one's yeah. ruining the other. I mean, so in the, and I mean, you talked about in the Ted talk, like the, the water quality was a real issue and that, you know, that could sideline you from the race. Like if it wasn't your break, it could have been the food, it could have been the water, it could have been any number of things. And, um, that's just not something we generally deal with in Western society and it's every day. Yeah. Yeah. Like in Kathmandu, it's like. I might've been a bit extreme on this, but like, I did not let the shower water touch my lips, like period. I, yeah. I didn't want the water to touch my face. And guess what? Like I, I've done that race twice and I haven't gotten sick. And almost all my friends who have attempted this race, they haven't finished the race on their first attempt because they got sick from something because yeah. it is like people are spitting and coughing everywhere. And it's just a really germy, um, and to them, it's normal. Like they're not, they're not being jerks. It's just their culture. But you have, as a, a super hygienic and clean culture, um, you have to really watch out. <laughs> yeah. I was, uh, I was in China pre SARS and a good friend of mine who I, I got close to on that, um, on that trip, I spent a summer there in, in 99, he stayed on for another year. So he lived, he lived there through the, the SARS epidemic and, you know, as terrible as it was, he's like the one, the one positive is people have stopped, you know, like just randomly hawking in the middle of the street. And like, it's, it's generally cleaner than it used to be because it was life and death. Like all of a sudden it mattered so much more to them, but that's like thousands of years of culture. It's not that they're rude or disgusting people. Like we might judge it that way, but that's just, it's completely normal. It would never even cross their mind. Yeah, it's super funny. Like I just got back from a race in Japan and I went and had like an authentic soba noodle experience and people slurp there. Like there's men in business suits, like slurping away, it's like, super loud. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's like, I just couldn't do it. Like I, I couldn't do it without <laughs> laughing. And then when I tried to do it, it's like, it just wouldn't go in my mouth properly. Cause I just, I've grown up not slurping. Yeah. So it was just so funny. And it was also like a little bit unnerving cause it's, it was, it kind of grossed me out a little bit. Cause I just hear like slurping. I'm trying to enjoy a, this meal. And it's yeah. like, <laughs> it's not the best sound in the world. I th <laughs> the only thing I can think of that's worse is listening to someone with like peanut butter or cream cheese in their mouth, but it's, it's pretty bad. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, th there's so many interesting things culturally from, from one place to the next, um, even within the same continent or the same general subcontinental area. Um, that I think a lot of people don't get to experience that. And it is really mind opening and eye opening if you allow it to be, uh, you know, a, a lot of people may not have the means to experience it, but there's lots of ways to learn about it at least, even if you can't afford the travel, but that's amazing that you've gotten to do that through your work and, and that you've allowed that to come in, you know, into your mindset and to open things up. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Like my dream was to travel the world and race my bike. And I thought to myself, like, how am I ever going to do that? Like my background, I have my master's degree in engineering and I was working for a startup doing solar engineering, thinking to myself, I just wish I could find a way to just start traveling the world doing this. And now 
like I've raced my bike and I don't even know, like more than 25 countries and this is my life. And like, it's easy to get mired down. Like you start focusing on just like how busy you are and all the things you're trying to accomplish. And I try really hard to have gratitude and to, to recognize that I am one of the few and lucky people that chose to go after their passion and like I'm living it every day. And it's not only just about me, like I'm able to affect people in a really positive way in their lives by telling stories about what I've done and then they can go have their own adventures too. That's awesome. How did you get, how did you get into this then? Cause I didn't know about that side of your background. Um, you were on a completely different path. So like, how did you, how did you make that leap? Did something catalyze it or did you just say enough or like, how did you do it? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's like, yeah, I, I didn't really, you know, it's hard to make a decision as to what you're going to be when you grow up. And I was always very academic growing up. I love school. I love math and science. And I was really good at those subjects. But I was also wanting to be practical. And whenever I was 17, I was like, okay, I'm not going to grad school. I just want to go to school for four years, get out, get a job, buy a house. Like, cause I, I was pretty sheltered in high school. Like I had pretty strict parents and really, and, and they did an amazing job raising me, but I just, my perspective was, was in my view of the world was very small. So I just wanted to do what everybody else in my family did, which is get an engineering degree and, and, you know, just work. So I found mountain bike racing about halfway through college and growing up, I was, I played the flute. I, I identified more as a musician and as an academic and less as an athlete. But my senior year of high school, I decided that I was going to run a marathon because a girl that I looked up to in my math class said, Hey, like marathons are cool. And then I thought I'm going to run a marathon. (laughs) So I got into running pretty quickly after she said that and ran my first marathon. Um, my, I think I, I was a senior in high school and then I just got into running, but then I kept getting injured and going to spin class at the gym, found cycling. Mm. Um, someone invited me to go mountain bike go, go mountain biking for my work. And two weeks later I did my first race and then I'm an all or none personality. So I was all, I was all in yeah. mountain biking. And you didn't and have an issue with I, injury and mountain biking, but you didn't running. I, yeah. Like, I mean, I've had some, I've been mountain bike racing now for 14 years and there's been some injuries, but yeah. like in terms of like, like knee pain or ankle sprain, like, I don't know. I just, I didn't know how to train properly either. Like okay. I was just somebody who wasn't an athlete. Like I played tennis growing up, but I wasn't like, I wasn't an endurance athlete growing up, so yeah. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. So that's why I kept getting injured. But yeah, like mountain biking was something that I loved and I was racing. Um, like I started racing in New Mexico and then I graduated and went to grad school and, and I chose Boulder, Colorado because that's where all the cyclists go. So, and I had a really great offer in the PhD program. So I started over there just wanting to go there so I could become a pro mountain biker. <laughs> I wow. went to grad school for engineering so I could become a pro mountain biker. <laughs> Love it. Um, I didn't tell them that. So, so yeah, I was racing collegiately and just racing within Colorado. And then I finished grad school. I I saw, I stopped at my master's because I was never passionate about engineering. And it was weird because I just like, I actually legitimately did not like it. And I just kept forcing myself through and like, I got a master's degree in something that I didn't really love, which is sounds crazy with who I am today because who I am today, there's just no way I would have done that. But I kind of like, just through sheer determination, got myself through this, um, this program and was working, thinking to myself, God, like I wrote a blog, like I, I started a blog in 2008 and that's when all this was happening. And I just started a blog cause I loved writing. I always loved creative writing and I wanted to just write about my adventures. 
And I was only having adventures within Colorado, but I was writing about them. And then I decided to write a review um, about a backpack on this club team I was on. And, you know, we had received these free backpacks and it ended up sending so much traffic to this other company's website that designed the backpack that they contacted me. Wow. And they invited me to be on their team, which is like a European based team, which was like a major up, up, upscale from what I was doing. So I said, yes, but then they started asking me to do some marketing projects for them. Um, and marketing was just something that came naturally to me. And I just, I never took a marketing or business class in my life, but I realized I was interested in that. And I was still working as an engineer, but I was doing my blog, I was racing and I was doing a little bit of like marketing projects for this company. And then it got to a point where it just wasn't sustainable to be working two jobs and training and racing. (laughs) So I said to this other company, like, look, um, you have to hire me. Otherwise, like I can't continue. So they ended up hiring me and, and giving me the role of their national sales and marketing manager. And it was a small company. So I wore a lot of hats and I started traveling around the United States. Um, and that that pivotal moment is a really important moment. So I, I want to pause because that was a moment where I could have said, well, I'm not qualified to do marketing. I've never taken a class. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, like I just, I didn't have the qualifications for that job, but I knew that I would be able to figure it out as I went. And that opportunity changed my entire life. I, I'm glad you paused because I was going to stop you. Um, that where I think most people would pivot in that, like, you know, that all these worlds are, are colliding and I can't keep doing all of them. Like one of them's got to win out is, well, then you go back to the safe one that pays the bills and, and you know, you can do. Um, but you, you, you followed the one that was interesting grabbing you. And that while it was a bit of a leap, you had the faith in yourself that you could figure it out and make a success of it. And that's like, that's a really crucial difference in you. Do you know, I mean, is it just part of, of your DNA to be willing to do that? Or was it about getting away from the things that you were less interested in? Like what, what sparked you to take the least sure of the paths? Yeah. To to be honest, like it wasn't in my DNA. Like I was always a rule follower. Like I went through a degree, I got an advanced degree in something I didn't really like. Um, I just, I just couldn't take it anymore. I, I I really think it was through mountain bike racing, through opening my eyes to what other people are doing and that it's okay to, to live sort of an alternative life and you don't have to follow the same path as everybody else. Yeah. Um, of course I was, ner- I was nervous. Like in my whole, like my family was completely unsupportive of the <laughs> whole thing. They're like, what are you doing? Like you got the, you have a master's degree in engineering. Like you could be making good money. You can do all this, that, and the other. And I said, you know what? Like, I don't want to do this. Like, I know I don't want to do this. And I had actually gone back to, I was actually taking classes while all this was happening too. Um, cause I thought maybe I'll go to medical school cause my master's was in biomedical instrumentation. And so like, I was already planning to bail on engineering cause I just, I don't know what it was, but I just couldn't do it anymore. I knew in my heart that I would be unhappy and that I didn't want to waste my life yeah. doing something that I didn't like just because you spend time doing something and going to school for it doesn't mean that you have to be stuck doing it forever. That's a really good point. Um, I'm so curious, were you interested in going down the medical route or was that just a, like, that's another thing that you can do that will pay the bills and sort of tangential with, with the, the, uh, the engineering experience that you had. The interesting thing was that I was, I was actually really interested in it. Um, I initially wanted to get my degree in biology instead mm-hmm. of engineering, but my dad was like, well, 
if you're only going to go to school for a bachelor's degree, it's not very practical and you're probably going to have to go to grad school. And at that point in my life, I, I thought, well, there's, there's no way I'm going to do that. Right. So, you had the four years, four year <laughs> yeah, plan. So like in, gra in grad school, I realized like, wow, cause I took a lot of anatomy, physiology. Like I took, you know, a lot of these courses that you, you would basically take if you're going on that track. And yeah. I realized that I loved it. And then I thought, and even at that, that time I knew that I wanted to inspire people to be healthier. So I thought to myself, well, if I, if I work in the medical field, I know that I can inspire people to have, to be healthier in their lives, which in hindsight, it's the best thing that ever happened that I didn't do that because I, and this is an entire other podcast, but like Western medicine is about prescribing drugs. It's not really about wellness. So that would have been the wrong place for me. <laughs> yeah. There's no money in people being well. You, like, yeah. um, my wife and I were just talking the other day about, I, I drink apple cider vinegar every day. And it's like, if, uh, Patricia Bragg was a drug company, maybe, but generally like there's no money in, in apple cider vinegar as a, as an industry. Um, you know, it's like it, just being healthy, making smarter choices. A, I think most people aren't interested in that work because we've been conditioned not to be interested in it. And there's no money behind it, which is part of why we're conditioned because, there's marketing dollars to get us to like, just treat what's going on. Don't just not have it going on in the first place. Yeah. Like I think that there is a, a big, um, a big shift in lifestyle medicine and now you can actually get like a master's degree in lifestyle medicine, which I still am curious about because yeah, like my entire, like my entire day and my entire life is about how to be healthier and yeah. like, I eat a, I eat a plant-based diet and I've been doing that for five years and it's been really cool to be able to help people. Like, like I don't even tell people you have to be a hundred percent plant-based. I'm just saying eat more fruits and vegetables and healthier foods and like yeah. being able to be the example and help people. Um, that's super rewarding because there's stories, there's some crazy stories out there and people changing their diet has had a massive impact on their lives. So yeah. that's, that's been really cool to be able to help people without going to medical school. <laughs> It's a total divergent path, but what sparked you going plant-based? Uh, it was actually my husband. Um, like he, like I wasn't married to him at the time, but like, I didn't really eat a lot of meat to begin with. Like mm. I just generally haven't really liked it. I just don't like the taste. Um, but I met him and he told me to watch a documentary called forks over knives. Yep. And I, I'm afraid of like, like getting cancer and heart disease and all these things. And I, I like, I just like being in control. I like being in the driver's seat of my own health. So when I, I learned that the food you put in your body is actually the thing that's contributing to all the diseases that kill us and that you can be in control to some extent of that, I thought, well, this is a no brainer. I'm going to change my diet. And it's been awesome. Like there's been massive performance gains as an athlete, which I didn't expect. Yeah. And just, just better mental clarity and just overall like way better health. So yeah. I'm really recovery. happy I did it. Yeah. I think I've noticed the recovery benefits more than anything. Um, but that, and I'm really adept at, at answering where I get my protein from. Are, <laughs> Which, are, do you, are you, are you like, are you a, a no meat person? Yeah. I'm plant-based as well. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, three, three and a half years. Yeah. Three and a half years. And, it, and I would say I'm not 100% vegan 100% of the time. I'm 100% like 99% of the time because every now and then there's, you know, like I was just on vacation and my son and I went out for brunch and he wanted me to, to have uh, some of his, his French toast. So I did. Like, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not like he's a little kid. I'm not going to 
Uh, and I'm not going to throw everything away as a result of that. Like, you know, oh my God, I've just ruined everything and I'll never be vegan again because it's over now. It's like, okay, well, my next bite doesn't have to be like that. And, you know, we'll see how I feel later. But, you know, next meal, back on the train and, and that's fine. And I don't just like, I don't just constantly break it and just be like, oh, it doesn't matter because now I can go back to being vegan. Like, I, you know, if I make a choice that is not in line with that, I look at why and if there was a valid reason for it that I'm okay with, then great. And if there isn't, then I want to understand why I made that decision. But then I move forward and I just go back on the path because I know ultimately I want to feel better. Um, my lifestyle is pretty, um, pretty demanding and, and draining in, in a different way from yours. But I ask a lot of my body and my mind and I don't need to burden it any further. So being plant-based has been really valuable for me. And I think that's part of why i've been able to keep going despite everything that i'm i ask of myself on a daily basis that's awesome and yeah i you know i think that it's not about wearing a label like people people are afraid to try because they're afraid that uh, they're like i didn't tell anybody that i ate this way until two years ago yeah. or, or not even two years ago a year and a half ago wow because i didn't want i didn't want to wear the label and i didn't want to like alienate people right or like if i if i quote made a mistake and ate something that was an animal product i didn't Can want people judged. pointing their finger right yeah, pointing a finger at me and it's not that's not what it's about it's it's just about being healthier so like you just have to do what makes sense for you so like some people like they want the label and they need the structure of saying like okay it is black and white yeah but there's other people where it's like they, okay, so they want to eat meat like once a week or when they go to someone's house and someone cooks for them, they want to have the freedom to eat whatever. Or like if they're in Peru and they're traveling, like these are um, lots of people tell me about all these stories of like they come to me and tell me, oh, like I, I messed up or I cheated. I'm like, no, you didn't. Like, that's fine. Like, just just keep going, like keep yeah. eating healthier. And um, it's about trending in the right direction. And yeah. like, if you want to go a hundred percent, that's awesome. But if you don't, and you just want to trend in the right direction, then that's fine too. Right. Right. And it's a personal thing. Um, you know, I, in my, my day job, I'm in the financial services world. And so, you know, if I go out with people on the sales side, like it's always steak dinners and alcohol and I don't drink <laughs> and I don't eat steak. And all they want to talk about is that I don't drink and what's on my plate and did I eat it all? I'm like, guys, like there's, there's going to be like a hundred other things we can talk about. I'm not being here like, Ooh, what are you eating right now? Did you finish the whole thing? Um, I feel like a three-year-old, like did Brian eat all of his potatoes? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, just, it's, it's just not an issue. You know, like I don't make a thing out of it. I'm not preaching at you. Like, and that's, I could tell when you said plant-based that you're not about, you know, the preaching and the labels and stuff. Cause when people hear vegan, they're like, Oh great, here we go. He's going to start like lecturing us and i'm like you know i don't have dreadlocks i'm not gonna start playing hacky sack with like whatever you think of the word vegan like it's not gonna happen and i don't really care like make your choice for you i'm choosing what i'm choosing whether you're cool with it or not and so far so like i ran a marathon as a vegan somehow i'm still alive so it's, i don't know how yeah i know it's pretty shocking right um anyway so yeah totally tangential but uh i was very curious um, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to add one more thing into that yeah. is that all those comments. So my husband is in the financial services industry as well. And like I go with him to a lot of his conferences. So I get to hear all those comments as well. Like the same exact things you're saying. Yeah, it's like get over it. <laughs> so there's just nothing yeah. else to talk about, but it does get does get kind of old. The drinking thing was probably more of an issue. Um, for some reason, like the past year and a half, it's all they can do is look at my plate. Um, anyway. Uh, 
This is awesome. And I like, I could seriously go another hour. Um, but I feel like that's too disrespectful of your time. And, and, um, I just, I'd say open door. If I could ever have you back on again, I would love to do that. Cause you're, you're great. And I love what we're getting into. I just, there's so much inspiration from it and it just stems from people looking at themselves and what they want to achieve and not backing away from that. Even if the decision is scary, or even if you think, you know, failure has a high likelihood, that's not really the question. Yeah, for sure. And all of these, all of these decisions that you make empower you and enable you to make even more decisions. So like I've been able to start multiple business ventures in my, under my own brand, um, just from these decisions I've made along the way. And it's given me the confidence to say that I'm going to try and I'm, I'm going to go for it. And there's a lot of us that have unrealized potential within us, unrealized ideas that we're afraid to try, or we just say, Oh, I'm not qualified, or I don't know how to do it, or it's going to be too hard, or it's going to take too much time. Like whatever your excuse is, like stop making excuses and just do it because you can. And if you don't like, it's way worse if you don't try. So like, yeah. just do it. Cause who wants to live a life of regret of all the things they wish they had done? Totally. Like, like if I hadn't have, have decided to try like every single thing that I've done, um, like I quit my marketing job and I started my own team and then I started, like, I just, all these things that I've done, um, have been from being willing to try and see what happens. And there's just no way, like if you talk to anybody who is living out their passion or like has that loves their job or their business or whatever, it all came from them deciding to try. So yeah. tr try because you have no idea what your life might look like. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking back to some, some of the tougher things or like, I'm not making air quotes cause that's cheesy, but if I were, I'd be making air quotes right now. Like things that, you know, people are like, Oh, you know, that didn't go well or whatever. Do you regret doing that? Um, you know, do you regret the college you went to or like, I, I got out of school a year early and you know, everyone's like huge mistake. It's the best years of your life. You should do all four years. There were a variety of reasons why it made sense for me. And everyone told me it was a huge mistake. And then the economy fell apart. And so most of my original graduating class lost their job offers or couldn't get them in the first place. So in a lot of ways, like I dodged a huge bullet with that, but even if I did regret it, then it's like, well, if I didn't do that, I wouldn't have had the job I got after that. I wouldn't have gone to the school that I went to for grad school. I wouldn't have met my wife. My son wouldn't exist. Like you start playing that game and you know, even the tough stuff, it all happens for a reason. And if you're still standing today, the reason's probably pretty good. You know, it's, it's not, it's not for bad things. Yeah. And, you know, I think that being stuck and feeling stuck, there's a wisdom in that, but it's what you do with that. Like don't stay stuck, but whenever you feel that stuckness, that means that you need to start taking action to start making changes and start trying things. And like, that's how I felt in my engineering job. I felt stuck. And like later in my marketing job I had, I felt stuck. And then like lately there's been, there's been things that have made me feel stuck and I'm excited now when I feel stuck, because that means that there's some growth that's about to happen. It means that, that I'm going to learn something and I'm going to start growing and expanding what I'm doing because I've seen it happen over and over. So when I get stuck, I just like impatient with it and I feel excited about it. Yeah, that's awesome. It's like an early warning sign that you're about to create something big. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I love that. Um, Sonia, where can people learn more about you, listen to your podcast, check out what you're up to, the, the businesses that you're starting and, and, uh, all of it, where, where can people find out more about you? 
Yeah, my website's the best place, Um We both have the same uh, drama with our name. My name is spelled with a Y as well, <laughs> S-O-N-Y-A. Um, yeah, there you can find my social media. Like I'm super active on all the platforms. You can contact me. You can check out my lifestyle apparel brand, Moxie and Grit. Yeah, the website's the best place to go. And then it feeds you into all the different things I'm up to. But I would love to hear from you guys. Thank you so much for listening. I really do mean it whenever I say I want to hear from you. I personally answer all my emails and I love connecting with people. And I, I got to say, I totally forgot to mention this. Moxie and Grit is such a cool name. Absolutely. I love like brilliantly named business ideas. Very, very cool. Yeah, thanks. The, na- the name's the hardest part. I, yeah. I want to write a book and the, the, na- the name of the book is going to be the harder than writing the book, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's usually the way, but then it's going to be a good title eventually. Um, <laughs> Awesome. Thank you so, so much for being on. I've loved it. Um, I just, I love your story and I love like, obviously I'll put a link to the Ted talk. It's so worth watching it. Um, people get a lot of it here, but there's the, the more, the better, and they should totally listen to your podcast because it's inspiring and it's also a ton of fun. So I'm, I'm glad that I found that and, uh, and shout out to Aaron Keith Hawkins for connecting us. He's a great guy. Um, this episode would not have been possible without him. So thanks for that. Um, yeah. Sonia, anything else before we go out that we didn't hit on that you think is super crucial? I think we're good. Cool. Um, you want to help me close it out? Yeah, let's do this. All right. Today is a new day. So go out and do it. Right on. Thank you so much, Sonia. You're welcome. Thank you. Did I not tell you how awesome she is? Sonia's incredible inspiring, motivating, and so clear on who she is, where she's going, who she's going to be. And I was going to say in the path to get there, but I think that's actually not even relevant. Like she knows what she's doing. She knows what she has to do like steps wise to get there, but she's not bothered by the journey up or down. And she's had, I mean, in that one race alone that we talked about that first time she did the yak attack, talk about ups and downs, my goodness, not even the mountainside of it, just like you know, she's kicking butt, doing incredibly well in the event. And then kind of right at the end, everything comes apart. Um, Wow. You know, and she recovered and she didn't just give up. And I think so many people would, and you grow from that. And then it's such growth since then. I love her message. I love what she's living and helping people do the same. We mentioned it in the show. You got to check out the Sonia Looney show, her podcast. It's awesome. She's got great people on there. Um, my friend Aaron Keith Hawkins is on there and, uh, it's a great episode. Aaron's incredible. Um, Sonia is a great host and knows how to pull out the right stuff from people. So listen to that, check out her TEDx talk, definitely follow her on Instagram and Facebook. If you know, she's at Sonia Looney, um, cause she's got incredible photos from all over the world and from her training and it's good stuff. Uh, and of course, Moxie and Grit, her fun lifestyle product company. Um, I love that title. It's, it's just like, you know, get yourself going and, and be tough about it. I love it. Uh, so I also would ask if this meant something to you, please do subscribe. If you haven't already, head over to iTunes and give us a review. You know, those reviews mean a lot. It helps get the word out about the podcast and getting the word out about the podcast is what I'm trying to do because that means more people have a shot at being inspired to help change their life. And that's the whole point of everything I'm doing with Do or Day. So check it out, subscribe, review, give the big goal exercise a try if you're thinking about it, if you're thinking about taking that step. 
doadaybook.com slash the exercise. Get started on your journey. With that, I'm going to close it out because this is a long episode and I could just keep going longer and longer, but I'll leave it there. Until next time, go out and do it.